Please turn in your Bibles to Jude. We'll read verses 3 through 4. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word, and I pray as we explore some of its themes that uh, our hearts would be strengthened uh, to defend the faith as Jude exhorts us. And uh, we pray that You would anoint my feeble lips, that You would take the weakness of man, and uh, by Your power You would exalt Your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the passage we just read commands us to contend earnestly for the historical faith, and that's all that Reformation Day is about. It's about contending uh, for the faith, and we can sometimes get weary of contending, weary of arguing and of being a negative, but Uh, Jude warns us in the rest of this book of the danger that happens to us if we stop uh, defending the faith. Um, You could uh, speak of this as as, uh, an aspect of total depravity because we live in a world of total depravity and if we're not fighting against it, uh, it is going to affect us. You could even call this a spiritual second law of thermodynamics that in any spiritual system... If uh, we do not have any outside force, you could call it uh, grace, uh, coming in, that that spiritual system is going to tend towards theological degradation as well as moral degradation. And you can see that illustrated in denomination after denomination that started off good and then began over time to deteriorate. And you can also see it in the denominations where God's grace has come in and renewed them. You can think of the... Southern Baptists and their fight against liberalism or the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church or even the remarkable case of the Worldwide Church of God uh, turning out uh, away from its cultic uh, background. But what has happened uh, in the last 50 to 100 years to the evangelical church is that they have forgotten their roots and they have gone downhill and right now are in desperate need of reformation. I think most uh, reformed leaders would would say, yes, we're just about as, in as much need of reformation today as the church was at the time of Martin Luther. Well, last Wednesday was Reformation Day, and I want to just take 35, 40 minutes or so uh, reminding us of the importance of the little word alone. It is a very important word at the time of the Reformation. But before we do that, let me give you a pop quiz, and you don't have to answer these out loud. I don't want you to embarrass yourselves. Uh, But um, some of these are a little bit trick questions. First question, true or false? The Roman Catholic Church believes in justification by faith. And the answer is true. They do believe in justification uh, by faith. If you read their new catechism or even their old Um, uh, council documents like the Council of Trent, which anathematized us Protestants, uh, they said that they believed in justification by faith. In section 8 
of the Council of Trent. It says, man is justified by faith. What they don't believe in and what they anathematized was justification by faith alone. Uh, so, agreement in language can be an illusion. And when you read controversial books on the subject of justification uh, nowadays, and you look at the, the issues that are in there and you say, well, it sounds like what they're saying is good, ask yourselves, are they taking out the word alone? Because that is one of the first words to go. Question number two. Does the Roman Catholic Church believe that apart from grace, no one can be saved? And the answer is, yes, they do. They believe in, uh, they, they talk about grace all the time. What they deny is that we are saved by grace alone. They say we're saved by grace, but not by grace alone. They believe in synergism. Uh, synergism is a, a word made up of two Greek words, soon, which means together with, and ergon, to work, uh, meaning that it's God and man working together. We both provide something in our salvation. In contrast, we believe in monergism, also made up of two words, mono, meaning uh, only, one only, and uh, ergon, again, to work, meaning that God alone is the one who produces salvation. We can only work out what God is 100% worked in us. So you've already learned two $10 words, synergism and monergism. Question three, does the Roman Catholic Church believe that Christ is our mediator? And they absolutely do believe that Christ is our mediator, but they've added other mediators like Mary and the saints and the church they just don't like the nasty little word alone that the Reformers insisted on sticking in front of Christ there. And this is uh, one of the reasons why so many organizations that sound initially like they've got good doctrinal statements really have majorly compromised themselves. Promise Keepers years ago took the word alone out of pressure from the Roman Catholics out of their doctrinal statement. He used to say that we're justified by faith alone. They took that out. But that is not a compromise. That is a total capitulation to the Romanist position. They have no problem with saying that we are justified by faith because they can still add in other things uh, to that. And so uh, it was a capitulation and a giving up of the gospel. Question four, does Rome believe that Scripture is inspired and infallible and is the foundation for our Christian life and practice? Now, you might be surprised by this, but they do, and they say it frequently that the Scriptures are infallible, that they're inspired, that they are the foundation for our faith. But what they uh, refuse to say is that it is the only authority for our life and faith. And they also say that it is not sufficient for our life and faith. And let me give you a, a quote. Uh, the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 88, uh, says, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Get that word alone that they are denying. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence, unquote. And so they deny sola scriptura in the Council of Trent, anathematized those who held to that word alone. Listen to this quote. Following statement was again made at the Council of Trent, which even though there have been many changes in Rome, they have never repudiated the Council of Trent. They said that God justifies the impious by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now that sounds good until you realize that 
they have left the word alone out so that they can add other poison in. And this illustrates the fact that it's never enough to affirm the positive. We also have to reject uh, error, falsehood. Some people say if you can't say something positive, don't say it. Well, I understand in many contexts that's a, a good saying. But, you know, when it comes to theology, you've got to have both. You can't just say the positive without rejecting the negative. You're not defending or contending for the faith if all you affirm is the positive. You're not contending. You're not fighting. Uh, the Protestant Reformation is called Protestant because it protests something. And there are a lot of evangelicals who, just to be nice and to be politically correct, have says we can't protest anymore. And what's happening is that they are beginning more and more to look like Rome because there is not this antithesis in their lives. You see, the Scripture does not just condemn those who fail to affirm the positive. That's a bad thing, to fail to affirm the positive. Um, but the Bible also condemns the one, quote, who does not reject what is wrong. Psalm 36, verse 4, who does not reject what is wrong. So if you fail to reject what is wrong, God condemns you in His Word. It's useless to affirm the positive if we're not rejecting the negative, because Satan makes all kinds of positive affirmations, right? He, he, he holds many things to be true, but he mixes them with poison. That's what makes it so dangerous, is he mixes truth uh, with poison. Uh, people think it's not kind and gracious to talk in this way, but I beg to differ. Failing to rescue souls from hell is not kind and gracious. And what uh, the Reformation was about was to crystallize doctrine, to bring the church back to its purity so that the church could be engaged in this process, by God's grace, of rescuing souls from hell. And this is a little bit of a longer introduction, but I want you to see how important this word alone really is. Now, I've given this illustration to you before, but if I take two glasses of lemonade, and in one glass, is lemonade plus the deadly poison arsenic, and in the other glass is lemonade alone or only lemonade, you would think that the word alone or only is a pretty significant word. It could spell the difference between life and death. And I think you would think there was something a little bit wrong with my head if I told you, oh, don't be so negative. Let's not emphasize the differences between these glasses. Both of these glasses have got lemonade. Let's emphasize what they have in common. You know, they're affirming lemonadeness. No, you would think that is absurd. But that is exactly the absurdity that people engage in when they try to have their feet in both camps and uh, work with Rome. I was shocked at how many evangelical churches a few months ago uh, cooperated, worked right hand in hand in the Luis Palau crusade with Roman Catholic priests who were accepted in there as counselors, uh, hand in hand. But this is an attitude that's been going on for a long time. Listen to this statement written by evangelicals and Catholics together. We give thanks to God that in recent years, many evangelicals and Catholics, ourselves among them, have been able to express a common faith in Christ and so to acknowledge one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And they go on to outline the points of agreement that they have. Now, I want to clarify here. I'm not saying that Roman Catholics cannot be saved. I know some Roman Catholics who are saved, and I'm encouraging them to get out of the Roman Catholic Church, but they're saved precisely because they do not believe in Roman Catholic doctrine. 
fact, what they many times have believed is books that have been published by Protestants and listening to Protestant radio and reading the Bible, which is a good thing. They've been permitted more and more uh, to read the Bible. But this document goes beyond that. They're not just saying there are some people who are saved within the Catholic Church. Here's what they say. These so-called, they say, quote, brothers and sisters in Christ are Catholics who are conscientiously faithful to the teaching of the Catholic Church, unquote. So they're affirming that there are both of these glasses of lemonade, you can drink from either one and survive quite okay. That's exactly what they're affirming. And now there are even Reformed people who are saying the same thing, and it shocks me. Now, interestingly, an almost identical statement of faith was made during the time of the Reformation where people wanted Luther to sign on to it. He refused. It's called the Colloquy of Ratisbon. And if you've got any history books, you ought to look it up because we keep repeating history. We never seem to learn from history, but it's exactly the same things that are going on right now in Omaha and in other areas. The Colloquy of Ratisbon was rejected by Luther as heresy, and he said it wasn't heresy so much for what it said, but from what it left unsaid, and yet still assuming that there was a commonality of faith that both sides had. They said, uh, we both affirm that the Scriptures are our authority, and so we have a common agreement. And the Reformers said, no, we don't. No, we don't. Because when you do not make the Scriptures our only authority for faith and practice, you destroy the authority of God's Word. He said, you have the authority of God's Word plus the authority of tradition, plus the church, plus extra continuing revelation, plus the authority of the Pope. In Matthew 15, Jesus said, You have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And so those extras that the Pharisees had been adding on, extra authorities, He said, You actually have destroyed the authority of God's Word through those man-made traditions. Well, we can say the same thing to Rome. Rome was not offended with the word Scripture. No, by no means. What they were offended by was the little word sola that they stuck in front of Scripture. That was the offensive word, Scripture alone. And likewise, it wasn't the doctrine of grace that led to the Reformation. Uh, Rome has always believed in grace. Uh, they believe apart from prevenient grace, you can't uh, do anything. And that grace begins your salvation. It undergirds your salvation. It finishes your salvation. Sometimes Roman Catholics talk more about grace than evangelicals do. But if you start saying sola gratia, grace alone, then you're going to have a fight on your hands because they do not believe that. It's not enough to say that we are justified by faith. We must contend that justification is received by faith alone, not faith plus works. Faith plus the merits of the saints, plus the merits of Mary, plus perseverance, plus um, satisfaction that you have to make by burning in purgatory for, you know, a thousand years. Nowadays, they're probably kinder and gentler. Maybe you're only going to be there a few months. I don't know. But it's not faith plus. It is faith alone. And so Jude commands us, contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Don't become weary of fighting simply because some Reformed people have become weary of fighting these battles and saying we ought not to be negative. Let's emphasize the commonality. We desperately in our age need a new reformation. Now let's see what happens when the alones and the onlys of Scripture are taken out. We've already dealt with some of them. But what difference does it make whether or not we believe that Jesus is the only sinless man? This was not one of the five solos. They had five solos that really summarized everything. 
this logically flows out of it. But this was really an important only. If you read um, the, uh, the uh, Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, uh, some of them have the introductions in there where they have quotes from the various reformers saying this was the linchpin. This was the key book that, uh, that under, uh, undergirded everything in the Reformation because if you once adopt the total depravity of man and the total sovereignty of God, everything else in the Reformation falls together. And uh, so it was very, very important to them. But the Catholic Church denied that man was totally depraved and every part of his faculty affected negatively and adversely and away from God. And they denied that every person was uh, deep, uh, totally depraved, uh, well, depraved at all, even polluted by sin. Catholic Catechism affirms that Mary was conceived completely free, not only of the stain of original sin, but from original sin itself and throughout the entirety of her life from conception to the time of her death, she was kept completely free from all sinful motives, thoughts, words, and actions. She was perfect. And uh, they're quite forthright in saying that. Now, some Roman Catholics have assumed the same for John the Baptist because they say the Scripture says he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And because of their semi-Pelagian view of human nature, they've been almost forced to say, well, maybe he was uh, kept perfect uh, as well. But that's not official Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary is. Uh, here's an example. This is from the Catechism on the Immaculate Conception of Mary. The most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. The fathers of the Eastern tradition call the Mother of God the All-Holy, Parnagia, and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. And so they say that her creation was very similar to the creation of, uh, of Jesus. Let's test this against the Scripture. Revelation 15, verse 4 says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. You alone are holy. Now, if that alone had been emphasized, then Mary would never have been exalted to being a co-redemptrix or a co-mediatrix uh, because they would have recognized she has sin. Luke 1.47, she says that she needed a Savior. Why would she need a Savior? It's because she has sins and needs to be saved from those sins just like everyone else. Uh, Revelation says to God, You alone are holy. Christ in Mark 10, verse 18 says, No one is good except God alone. So Jesus is uh, covered here because he is God. He's the only man who was God as well. And he wanted to see if this questioner believed that. But he says, no one is good except God alone. Now, his mother was living at the time. Okay, Mary was living at the time. So Jesus must have in indicated that Mary herself was tainted by sin. Psalm 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And then Paul quoted that, repeated it in the New Testament, so it must continue to be true. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Now, if God alone is holy, and if man cannot contribute anything that is not stained by sin, then that means that our salvation is 100% of God. 
Some people have assumed, in fact, I've read in books illustrations of this, that God has built the bridge of salvation most of the way over the Grand Canyon, but we have to supply just a little bit on this side. We have to build a little of the ways out into the bridge. Now consider this. If everything that we do is tainted by sin, that means any timbers that we supply for that bridge out of our lives are going to be rotten timbers, and when we walk on them, they're going to let us down. They're going to destroy us. We're going to fall uh, to perdition. And so this is why the Scripture indicates that God must grant repentance to the Gentiles. Why? Our repentance would be a defiled repentance. God must give the gift of faith. Over and over, faith is called a gift. Why? Any faith we would bring, and you can check last few verses of John 2, and you can see the faith that God had not given. It was not a saving faith. Any faith we would provide would be rotten timbers. And there are many implications for this. Obviously, for salvation there are. But even for ourselves, we need to think about from this perspective. God wants us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on, on, on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, too many times, even we Protestants wonder, you know, did I believe well enough? Did I repent well enough? We have a faith in our faith. Our eyes are on our timbers, as it were. Whereas God says, no, it's, it's something, if there is genuine faith, it's going to be a faith in Christ. Not a faith in faith, but a faith in Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, am I looking at the timbers that I am supplying or am I looking completely to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, this obviously factors into the last solo that we're going to look at in a moment that only God gets the glory. But let's move on to one of the five solas that I love to preach on, one of the most famous ones from the Reformation, and that is sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Turn with me to James chapter 4 and verse 12. Rome gave authority to the Pope, to councils, and to priests that went beyond the Scripture. In fact, it went way, way beyond the Scripture. But um, in James 4, verse 12, he says, There is one lawgiver. Uh, Fourteen of my translations have it. There is only one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? It's not enough to say that God is a lawgiver, because, you know, he is a lawgiver. Uh, Protestants and, and uh, Roman Catholics could agree on that. But we have got to use the exclusive word one. There is one lawgiver, as some translations have it. There is only one lawgiver. It may seem like an innocent thing to add to the Scripture rules like uh, don't drink, uh, don't uh, don't smoke, uh, don't wear lipstick, uh, you know, all of the different rules that are out there. And the Pharisees had a lot of these different little rules. And they said, what's the harm of this? We're just trying to fence in the law, keep people from getting too close to sinning. But Jesus said when they added all of these rules, they were actually making void the law of God. It was destroying the authority of God's law. <clears throat> and so to verse... Um, in verse 11, we could apply this to politicians who think that they can ignore God's laws for the state and make their own laws. And God says, no, there is only one lawgiver. To Sessions, who make rules that are binding the consciences of people, we need to say, no, there is only one lawgiver. It's not just Roman Catholics at the time of Luther who bound men's consciences. Uh, Protestants are doing it as well. 
Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. In fact, this is, a, I think, a very important passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. And this passage here clarifies by indicating that sola scriptura is compromised when the church goes beyond anything in the Scripture. Now, this is pretty radical stuff I'm going to be getting into here. And I want you to hear me out. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. Now, I want you to especially notice that phrase, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. It is sola scriptura, scripture alone, which must govern our theology and our conduct. Uh, The Reformers wanted to have the Word, the whole Word, and nothing but the Word. It was not just an academic pursuit. It was something that transformed Europe and later transformed other countries. They thought like this. If we cannot think beyond what is written, all our axioms have to come from the Bible. We need to take our economics from the Bible. Every axiom of economics is uh, is in the Bible, at least true economics is. And when they took that, it transformed uh, these Reformation-oriented countries. And so they wanted us to be uh, thinking along the lines of going to the Bible as the foundation for politics, sociology, anthropology, science, farming, mathematics, everything. The Bible is our axiomatic starting point. Let me give you some quotes. The reformer John Wycliffe said, All law, all philosophy, all ethics are in Scripture. In Holy Scripture is all truth. Now, he's not saying that the Bible is a textbook in the modern sense of the word textbook. Uh, that, that we think about, but uh, he was saying that just as all mathematical principles flow from certain axioms that are out there, and you build the entire system of mathematics from that, so every axiom that is needed for every area of life needs to be in the Scripture and needs to come from the Scripture. And so that means that every little detail of the Bible is important. Kelvin wrote, I call that knowledge not what is innate in man, nor what is by diligence acquired, but is what, what is revealed to us in the law and the prophets. Here's what Luther said about Scripture. In itself is most certain, most easily understood, most plain, is its own interpreter, approving, judging, and illuminating all the statements of men, of all men. Therefore, nothing except the divine words are to be the first principles. First principles are is a synonym for axioms. So he said they're to be the, the first principles for Christians. All human words are conclusions drawn from them and must be brought back to them and approved by them. That was the Reformation principle. It got watered down some later on, but that was the Reformation principle. The Bible provides the axioms or the starting points or the presuppositions for absolutely every area of thought, of research, of planning, of teaching on which we should base them, test them, evaluate them. Uh, God doesn't say that the Bible is true. You know, if we say, okay, the Bible is true, that would imply our minds are judging, our minds are the standard, and we've come to the conclusion, okay, the Bible is true, but we're the standard by which it's judged. The Bible says, thy word is truth. That's different. Truth is a standard by which all other truth claims are judged. That's the way we need to approach the Scripture. Anything else is theory. But what comes from the axioms of the Scripture, that 
uh, can be said to be truth. Well, if that's the case, then the, 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 the implications are just enormous. One implication is that the Scriptures have to be sufficient for life and practice. And that's exactly what Second Peter 1 says. So the Scriptures have given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. At the upcoming uh, Providential History Fair, I hope to show that people who were convinced by this fact from the 500s even through into the 1000s A.D., people who were convinced by this fact and sought to reason from the Scriptures spawned an incredible um, technology revolution. And we're going to be seeing the specific ways in which uh, it, it, it impacted uh, their thinking. Paul said that the guidelines for life are so clearly laid out in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Scriptures are sufficient to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's the question. Why do we need a Reformation today? I would say it's because evangelicals like Alan Johnson deny that it is sufficient for every good work. They explicitly deny it. He says, therefore, an evangelical ethic will never be merely a biblical ethic. That's a jettisoning of alone. It will never be merely a biblical ethic. Not all moral obligation is rooted in Scripture. Evangelicals must come to grips with this more complete understanding of the Christian ethic, especially in the area of social ethics. Norman Geisler agrees with that. Chuck Colson agrees with that. Now, when these people agree with that, they're not saying that the Bible does not have a sufficient standard. It is because they are ashamed of the standard that the Scripture sets up for social ethics and for other areas uh, of life. But if we take the word only or alone from, away from Scripture, we're affirming no more than Rome does. We just have a different kind of compromise. We're just different kinds of compromisers than Rome was. And the statement on Scripture by evangelicals and Catholics today, sure, it sounds nice on the surface, but it's a travesty in the face of all of the, all of the um, uh, alternative competing authorities that have been emerging in the evangelical church and the emerging church and uh, in other, other areas, without only everything is up for grabs. Here's my question. Where do you go for your starting points, for your presuppositions, for your axioms? Those are all just synonyms for the same thing. If you've done much study of... Um, how every axiom for mathematics, for example, is in the Bible and how you build a system, you build your theorems and everything uh, from that, you recognize that every jot and tittle of the Scripture is important because you may have wondered, why did the Scripture repeat that in that strange way? You know, just for a narrative, you wouldn't think it would do that. And it's worded kind of funny, but then when you begin diving in and looking for axioms, you realize, Wow, it was perfectly written. That was exactly what was needed. And if you jettison the book of Numbers or you jettison the book of First Chronicles, you're, you're going to be in a heap of trouble because there's all kinds of presuppositions needed for various disciplines that you won't find elsewhere in the Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone, what did Jesus say, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's so important. And um, we need to do much more developing of this. Leslie Flynn tells of a lady who was traveling in Europe and she saw a bracelet uh, that she thought was just irresistible. She sent a, her husband a cable saying, have found wonderful bracelet, price 75000 May I buy it? Her husband promptly wired her back and said, no, price too high. But the cable off operator left out the comma and so it said, no price too high. 
and she bought it. <laughs> Just a little comma. You know, you wouldn't think it would make a big difference, but it made a world of difference in this case, much to the husband's chagrin. But that is true of all of the words. You know, Paul makes a big point about a single letter. Uh, letters, words, tenses, of verbs, all of those things are so important in the Scripture. God has crafted this so that it would be a Word of God entirely fitted for what we need. Uh, even the little word alone is so important. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. Deuteronomy 5.32 Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Scripture alone. Let's defend it. Let's contend for it. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.47 says your life depends upon it. Now third only is sola Christo or Christ alone. Now during the time of the Reformation, this was so critical because they had indeed elevated Mary to the status of a redeemer and a mediator. Now they put the feminine on it, mediatrix and redemptrix. But um, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now listen to what Rome taught. This is out of the catechism again. Nothing comes to us except through Mary's mediation, for such is God's will. This is not back in the time of the Council of Trent. This is, the, this is modern, modern catechism. Nothing comes to us except through her mediation. Well, that puts her mediation on an exactly the same par because nothing comes to us except through Christ's mediation. So she is mediating to the same extent as Jesus is mediating, according to that. The Catechism goes on to say, every blessing that comes to us from the Almighty God comes to us through the hands of Our Lady, unquote. Now, Scripture affirms the opposite over and over again. It says, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, in contrast, Rome teaches Christ empowered Catholic priests not merely to announce that sins were forgiven, but actually to forgive sins. Now, we rightly reject that as Protestants, but let's point the finger at ourselves because there's lots of ways in which we deny the sufficiency of Christ. In fact, that's the title of a great book I recommend you get by John MacArthur. He's a Baptist writer, but um, our sufficiency in Christ. And he's written several other uh, articles and books. One of them is Ashamed of the Gospel, showing various ways in which we as Protestants are compromising this doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ. But anyway, if you are united to Christ, Ephesians 1 says, you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, you're seated with Him. You're reigning with Him. You're not a pauper. You're kings and you're priests and we shouldn't act like paupers. And one of the reasons that Rome crafted all of these prayers to Mary and to the various saints is because they did not feel like they were worthy enough to approach unto Christ. Christ was so perfect they had to have some other mediators. Pope Leo XIII said, Just as no one can approach the highest Father except through the Son, so no one can approach Christ except through His Mother. But then there was a problem. She's perfect too. And so they felt unworthy to approach to Mary, and so they had to pray to saints and to non-saints and to dead family members. And before you knew it, you had this whole slew of mediators that mediated between you and God, a whole hierarchy. Now, the Scripture affirms in contrast in Hebrews 4 that we can come boldly to the throne of grace through Christ. That's the only mediator that the Scripture knows of, through Christ. 
Now again, we could apply this to salvation in many different areas, but one application I would make is, do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with the Father through Christ? There's a lot of Protestants whose relationship to the Father is every bit as formal and distant as the Roman Catholics are. Sure, they can have joy in uh, maybe a worship service like this, but it's a contagious joy that they get by association with others. But you get them all alone between just them and God, and their relationship is as dry as dust. God says it shouldn't be that way. Christ has provided for us access to the Father. There's many ways in which we can substitute mediators. Phil Kaiser is not a mediator for you. Your parents are not mediators. God wants each one of us to go boldly, directly to the throne of the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and to have confidence when we do that. Okay, there's another sola, sola fide, just faith alone. Rome long ago affirmed this, without faith, no one has ever attained justification. So evangelicals and Catholics together document is not affirming anything new when it says this, we affirm together that we are justified by grace through faith. That's no advancement over the Council of Trent. You know, this is nothing, no changes whatsoever. They're conceding nothing. And Paul says that is another gospel if that is as far as we go. Romans 4 insists we are justified by faith apart from works. And to claim that we have the same gospel as Rome does is nothing short of deceitful. At the Council of Trent, Rome said in Canon 9, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, let him be anathema. Anathema means let him be cursed, let him be sent to hell. This is the great gulf that lies between Rome and the true faith. It's that word alone. And so Paul pronounces an anathema against Rome. Rome pronounces an anathema against Paul. Whose anathema are you going to be afraid of? I'd be afraid of Paul's anathema. I'm not going to be worried about their anathema. They're contradicting Paul. Here's what Paul says. God imputes righteousness apart from works. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's the Greek word anathema. Let him be anathema. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we, you have received, let him be accursed or anathema. So we are left with two anathemas, the anathema of Paul and the anathema of Rome, and that whole conflict hangs on one little word, alone. That's what it all hangs on. When you read the modern controversies that have erupted over the questions of justification and baptism and covenant and things like that, just ask yourself this question. Do they bring up the word alone? And if not, why not? It's a scary thing when you think about fiddling with such an important doctrine as justification by faith. There is a glaring hole in modern theology and it's got to be patched or the floodwaters are going to eventually sweep away the liberties that we have enjoyed in Christ. Another only that the Reformation reintroduced was that we must worship God alone or only God. In Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Now, the Romanists have managed to ignore that command, and the way that they have done it is by redefining what worship means. And they've come up with three clever Latin terms that uh, uh, say uh, 
make distinctions amongst worship. They say that we can have dulia worship of the saints, hyperdulia worship of Mary, but we may only have latria worship of God. So don't ever have latria worship for the saints or for Mary, but there's three different kinds of worship. Well, very clever distinctions, but you won't find them in the Bible. And I challenge you to look at Roman Catholic liturgy and see if you can make those distinctions any sense in their liturgy. I, I, I challenge you, you will not find any distinctions between latria, dulia, and hyperdulia. Let me give you an example. See, I'm going to read you a little prayer that's a very uh, famous prayer near the time of death. And see if you can see any distinction between Latria, Dulia, and Hyperdulia for the worship of Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. Here's what it says. Jesus, Joseph, Mary, I give you my heart and soul. Jesus, Joseph, Mary, assist me in my last agony. Jesus, Joseph, Mary, I breathe my soul to you in peace exactly the same liturgy for all three persons. Hundreds of prayers that are written to Mary and to the saints and even to the popes show the idolatry of this wicked system. The following blasphemous words were said to Pope Innocent X when he was coronated. Most holy and blessed Father, head of the church, ruler of the world, to whom the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed, whom the angels in heaven adore, and the gates of hell fear, and all the world adores, we especially venerate, worship, and adore Thee. That's blasphemous. And I don't bring this up to be mean-spirited. I bring it up to warn the faithful that we ought not to give credit to Rome for what it does not deserve. Uh, there are so many people who are uh, opening their arms, as it were, but con the confession calls her a synagogue of Satan and the Antichrist. We ought not to call her a true church of Jesus Christ, contrary to what Doug Wilson says in his tapes. Uh, she is the synagogue of Satan Antichrist, and Protestants have no business being a part of things like the Billy Graham Crusade or the Louis Palau Crusade that works hand-in-hand hand with priests. If I was a counselor there, there'd be a priest right there ministering to people willy-nilly. There can be no uh, working together along those lines. And there's a whole movement within Omaha, the evangelical churches, wanting to embrace, and I've heard them many times saying, let's just embrace Roman Catholics because if they don't, if they're not against Christ, they're for Christ. And I, you have to point out ways in which they are against Christ. But they want no distinctions except for the Apostles' Creed. Let me remind you, though, that the Roman Catholic Church has been excommunicated, has never repented of the Council of Trent, and has the anathema of Paul resting upon it and should not be seen as a true church. It is certainly not the Catholic church. We ought not to use the word Catholic with it because at the Council of Trent, they anathematized several Catholic doctrines that the church held to for the first 12 centuries. Now, I bring this up for another reason. Not just pointing the finger at Rome. We all have a tendency toward idolatry, false worship. All of us do. And we can have our own rationalizations. We have idolatry of the state, of the Republican Party, and of the Constitution. And when people are confronted about it, they say, well, I'm not bowing down to any graven image. And because we don't have a literal graven image, we think we can get away uh, with uh, worship of money. You know, trust in money, which Jesus calls mammon. Trusting in idols of power, idols of knowledge, idols of pleasure and relationships and other idols. It's so easy to rationalize. And this is where the book by Herbert Schlossberg, Idols for Destruction, points the finger at us. It's pointing out, we Protestants, we need a reformation. We're in, in jeopardy of violating this only. 
Now, there are a lot of other alones that we could look at. There's only one judgment, one infallible standard, one God, one bride, one blood, one salvation to the only wise God. But I want to end by talking about my favorite sola, to the glory of God alone. God says, my glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 48, verse 11. He's jealous for His glory. And yet, how many doctrines in the church give glory to man rather than giving glory to God? He says, I will not give my glory to another. The Reformation cry was sole deo gloria. There are many scriptures that indicate that if God does all things and we, are, we live in Him and move you know, of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, then He alone should get the glory. 1 Corinthians 3, 7. So then, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. When people sought to glorify Peter, Peter said in Acts 10, verse 26, Stand up. I am only a man myself. And when we realize that we are only men and women, we will be far more likely to give the glory to God and to accept all of the other onlys. Let's pray. Father God, we come to You seeking Your grace to be faithful, to defend and to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Please forgive us for those times where we have grown lazy or where we have not even resisted our own fleshly tendencies away from that. Father, we see the pull of our flesh. And apart from Your Holy Spirit, uh, our hearts are even heavy toward worship. We ought to be delighted to be able to offer up our hearts to worship in You and to defend Your cause. But Father, so many times we are pulled away and so we pray that You would do a reformation within us personally and corporately in our families and in the church and throughout society. Father, we long to see a new reformation such as as it goes way beyond anything that America has ever seen before. We do not just want to go back Uh, to the good old days of the Puritans. Father, we want to advance beyond those things. We want to keep fixing our eyes on the goal of Christ Jesus. And so we pray that our vision would not be uh, anchored in a constitution. It would not be anchored in the past. Uh, We would benefit from the past. But Father, we would move on with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.